0: Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm Ron Flagg, President of the Legal Services Corporation. I'm excited to welcome today Bridget Mary McCormick, Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. Chief Justice McCormick joined the Supreme Court in January 2013 and became Chief Justice in January 2019. Before her election to the court in November 2012, she was a law professor and dean at the University of Michigan Law School and taught at Yale Law School. She spent the first five years of her legal career in New York with the Legal Aid Society and the Office of the Appellate Defender. Chief Justice McCormick, great to see you. Thanks so much for joining me. You have been a leader nationally and in Michigan in drawing attention to the Justice Gap, topic that is near and dear to my heart. And the Justice Gap, of course, is the wide gulf between the legal needs of low and moderate income Americans and the resources available to meet those needs. You've also been a leader in advocating for changes to address the justice gap. And those changes span from additional resources for civil legal aid, to using technology to leverage scarce judicial and legal services resources, to rethinking fundamentally how our civil dispute resolution system works and could work better, and the regulation of the legal profession. So we have a wide swath of initiatives to talk about, but For starters, you recently announced that you will be retiring from the bench before the end of the year. And that begs the question, why did you do that? And what are your plans?
1: First of all, it's great to see you, Ron, and talk to you again. Thank you for your leadership throughout the pandemic and before on all of these important issues that I think are some of the most important in our society today. And I'm eager to talk about all of them and anything else that comes up. I announced my retirement at the end of the calendar year. It will mark the end of my term as the chief justice in Michigan. The chief serves two two two-year terms. Um, And I will have served on the court for 10 years. And I am eager to have another chapter in my professional career. And so I'm moving on to that. And I'm also frankly, a a believer that there's an obligation for those of us in my generation to make way for the next generation of leaders and a more diverse group of leaders. The Michigan Supreme Court is one of, I believe, 27 state Supreme Courts with no justices of color. A state that has more than 20 percent of its residents are people of color and our state Supreme Court doesn't have a single justice of color. And I am quite confident that the governor who will be replacing me will change that. And that makes me happy for the state. I think our courts should reflect the people they serve if they care about growing public confidence.
0: The values that you've reflected in your work, both as Chief Justice and before, are enduring values, enduring causes. So I assume uh, you're going to continue your leadership. What will be the vehicles for that?
1: Yeah, I'm doing... Two things formally, uh, I will have two jobs, although I'll, I'll continue to serve in a lot of other roles and we can talk about those too, but I will be the CEO of the American Arbitration Association starting in February. And the AAA, of course, is the largest nonprofit in the alternative dispute resolution space and was founded almost 100 years ago with a mission of supporting the courts in access to justice. And I think the primary organization that can be a real leader in making sure people have choices and options in how they resolve their civil disputes. But I'm also, and I've already started the second role uh, the Strategic Advisor to the Future of the Profession in- Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where I am conspiring with your friend Jim Sandman and Jen Leonard and Miguel Willis and Erica Dixon. And it is a tremendous team that is thinking about interdisciplinary ways to address what is a tremendous market failure in the legal profession and that i've already started on i spent most of last week in philadelphia with my awesome teammates and that's a lot of fun already
0: it is a great team and i know jim is a pretty uh, stoic fellow but he was positively giddy when uh, you announced that you were going to be joining that team so let's set the context because I think the context for the innovation and creativity that you've shown and want to continue to show needs some context because all too often response is we need to somehow protect the status quo or protect consumers as if consumers of legal services today are being well served. So the LSC 2022 Justice Cap reported that for lack of resources, legal aid programs turn away half of the eligible clients who seek help. And the study also reported that 92% of the civil legal problems facing low-income Americans were addressed with no or inadequate assistance. That's the status quo. How should the gargantuan size of the justice gap affect our perspective on responses to the justice gap?
1: Yeah, I think those statistics are really compelling. I also use other metrics when I'm talking to different audiences to make sure the vastness of this problem breaks through. Because in my view, the enormity of it tells me that the tinkering around the edges and figuring out if we can just squeeze a few more pro bono hours out of very well-meaning lawyers across the profession is not going to solve the problem. I really believe we have to rethink how we make sure people have access to legal information, legal services, legal help from the ground up. It's hard to construct a brand new um, building, but I think a brand new building needs construction at this point.
0: And again, those who are concerned about preserving the old building need to explain how we're gonna stop turning away half the people who come to Legal Aid's door or do better than failing to serve 90 percent of the folks who need help. Now, during your tenure on the Supreme Court, you championed expanding access to justice, and that really predated the pandemic. Certainly the pandemic focused a sharp spotlight on your work. And at LSC's Innovations in Technology Conference back in 2021, which at this point seems an epic or two ago, you made the following now off-quoted observation, quote, this pandemic was obviously not the disruption we wanted, but I think it would have been the disruption we needed in courts to be able to accelerate change in a way that I hope can produce a justice system that's more accessible and more transparent and more efficient, end quote. How has this played out in your view during the pandemic? Have courts developed innovations to address the challenges arising during COVID? And are those innovations ones that should be preserved and are they being preserved?
1: Yeah, I feel like I have a bit of a mixed answer here, Ron. I wish I was the bearer of all good news, although I do think courts are only one stakeholder group in our profession, and there are other stakeholder groups who are moving in the direction of change as well, and I view the whole thing as a big Jenga game, and every time one piece gets pulled out, we get closer to being able to rebuild the building. It is absolutely the case that courts around the country innovated during the pandemic, and those innovations Produced better outcomes for the people who need justice and can't afford an advocate to help them find justice. Moving courts online isn't really transforming courts, but we learned from moving to remote platforms how many people were benefited from having a remote option. Default rates in dockets where People are largely representing themselves, debt collection dockets, eviction dockets, family cases, guardianship cases, dropped in pretty significant numbers when people had a remote option. And that makes a lot of sense in retrospect, shouldn't have been that hard to sort out because... While it is true that for some people, technology is a barrier to access to justice, for a whole lot more people, transportation is a barrier, and so is having a job, a new job that you can't take time off from, or having kids that you don't have help caring for, or another member of your family who you're caring for who's disabled or ill. An iPhone is expensive. It's not as expensive as a car. So the barriers to accessing physical courthouses are significant, and they're most significant for people who can't afford lawyers to help them with their legal problems. So that's just one set of lessons we learned from the pandemic. The part where I have a little bit of mixed news is we're in the middle right now of the process of sorting out What lessons we learned we're going to keep and take with us in the next phase of what justice looks like in courthouses. And there, the jurisdictions are all over the map. And I think the biggest difference is whether there is a court leader, a, a chief justice, a state court administrator, a majority of justices on a particular state Supreme Court, who are focused on learning from everything we did in the pandemic, a lot of which was uncomfortable because we had to innovate and experiment and sometimes fail and collaborate across uh, branches of government and with community partners. And there are leaders around the country who want to make sure that we take with us everything we learned that has benefited the people who need it most. But there are other um Places where, frankly, judges are hunkering down and hankering to get back, as Richard Susskind puts it, to, to the good old days. And that's why we're seeing different, we're going to see different experiments stick with us in different places across the country.
0: Yeah, it is unfortunate because, again, the people who want to turn back to the good old days, the good old days brought us 50 percent turn rates and 92 percent of the problems unrepresented, it's a little bit like crowds standing outside of a burning building and uh, cautioning the uh, fire department about the potential for water damage. It it just doesn't make any sense. You mentioned other stakeholders. Who are the other stakeholders you see as important to identifying new creative solutions to improve the justice system and to carry forward and improve upon those that developed in the last few years?
1: Yeah, this is one of the most interesting parts of this puzzle, because I think there are different stakeholder groups, among which there are people really working on and thinking about change in significant ways in all of them. But we don't do a great job of talking to one another. So state Supreme Courts are critical, because not only do they have the ability to run the administration of justice, in most states, the state Supreme Court is constitutionally charged with the administration of the courts of the state. And that gives you a whole a lot of responsibility to figure out how you do business in your courts. They're also the bodies that license new lawyers, and licensure is um, an important part of the puzzle in thinking about how we change what we do um, in our justice system. State Supreme Courts are important. So are legal educators, the deans and the faculties of our law schools and not just the T14, which are largely sending law grads to one very bespoke part of the profession, that doesn't have a whole lot to do with the whole rest of the profession, where lots of lawyers are graduating from law schools and having a hard time making ends meet, this incredible market failure, right? We're graduating all these lawyers from law schools around the country who are barely making ends meet, and yet we have 92% of our neighbors who can't access um, help in resolving their legal problems. So, So law schools are a big part of the solution and a stakeholder group that's really important and could lead change. The accreditor is another place where change happens. So the ABA Council on Legal Education and Admission to the Bar is the accreditor of law schools, and law schools are often constrained by the accreditation standards as well as the bar in their states, right? So the law schools feel like we can only do so much because we have to make sure we're meeting the standards of the accreditor and we have to make sure our students can get licensed in our states. So we're kind of constrained by the state Supreme Courts on the one hand and the accreditor on the other hand. I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, I am the vice chair of the ABA Council on Legal Education and Admission to the Bar, and I will chair it starting in in August. So I have a foot in a lot of these stakeholder groups right now. I think one of the most important and exciting stakeholder groups is the public. Lawyers have been terrible at consulting the end users about how well we're doing. You can't drive through Starbucks without getting a survey about how well you were served your cappuccino. And yet, you know, we have a profession full of lawyers arguing that we can't change the profession because the customers might be hurt. Well, ask the customers. And that's where some of the biggest changes I think we are seeing are coming from. What Rohan Pavalori has done with Upsolve in perhaps dramatically changing who can help people with their legal problems is a tremendously important piece of the Jenga game that's been pulled out. So the public, I think, has a real role to play in demanding better from our profession. And I think they're more and more interested in playing it. I think you've seen in the criminal justice space that the public has been pretty organized and effective at pushing reforms in criminal justice in the last couple of years. And I think we'll see the same in civil justice.
0: Yeah, I do think, you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is things like evictions and domestic violence and other family law issues And public benefits, which were at best back of the uh, newspaper to date myself, items before the pandemic became headlines during the pandemic, unfortunately, but to the good in terms of hopefully addressing some of the issues you've talked about now. You mentioned that the adoption of innovation and leadership toward innovation across the states is uneven, which is really to be expected, I would think. But we've found, certainly in the legal aid space, that modeling best practices or modeling practices that we at LSC believe to be very effective in delivering legal services is a good way to help educate and perhaps persuade other legal aid providers about how to better provide services. I think something similar plays out in the court space, and you've been looking at ways the court system can better adapt some of the changes by working with the National Center for State Courts, which is really a, a convener, at least I view it at that. Can you talk about what uh, the center, National Center is doing?
1: Yeah, the National Center was really a tremendously important organization throughout the pandemic because it it was quick and agile in focusing everybody around the country on innovations that were working to make justice accessible during a global pandemic we just i we saw more collaboration across jurisdictions than ever before and frankly the national center is sticking with that model because that is a way to be able to scale up best practices across the country. So just for one example, in the pandemic, a number of states, and I think Michigan was first, created statewide eviction diversion programs. We did it because there was funding, there was CARES Act funding, and there was agreement across all the branches of government that we should spend some of it, spend some of that funding on eviction diversion programs. And so We stood up a statewide eviction diversion program in Michigan, and then a number of states copied it. Everyone was doing things so fast. You know, my fellow chief justices would just say, can you send me your program? And we would all just adapt things that were working well in other states. Well, the National Center has taken that model and formalized it in the eviction diversion space so far with the help of a a national funder, Wells Fargo, They are supporting creative, innovative eviction diversion programs that are working in different kinds of communities around the country and then collecting data from those programs so that it can be shared and modeled to other communities. You know, an eviction diversion program, there were successful eviction diversion programs in communities before the pandemic, before there was CARES Act funding. I'll tell you where they were. They were in places where there was a judicial leader who wanted a successful eviction diversion program. Because when there is a leader who wants one, they know where to go in their community to make a program like that successful. It turns out that finding ways to keep people in their homes is is not only good government, it's good for your local economy. A creative and energetic judicial leader can get that done even before there's federal spending money available to, to fund it. And the National Center will now be proving that up in jurisdictions across the country. And then other jurisdictions that want to run eviction diversion programs will have this great set of pilots and data f- from which to Run their own programs. And they're looking at doing that in other important dockets as well. We know that debt collection dockets are pretty important dockets where we should be figuring out where we can innovate and help the many people who have to manage those. And that's another one I know the National Center is looking at. Um, It really has been a model for collaborating and scaling up good ideas.
0: And you mentioned the speed with which courts and other stakeholders changed course during the pandemic out of necessity, but that's been very instructive. Prior to the pandemic, if a court or a bar association or a legal aid provider wanted to do something dramatically different in the way it delivered its services, they would have undertaken a study maybe several studies, put it to a wide range of input, and three or four years later made a recommendation for other people to consider. We didn't have the luxury of that. When the courts were closed, legal aid programs couldn't see their clients face-to-face other than in exceptional circumstances, and you know it led to much faster innovation than we would have seen otherwise. You mentioned technology. You've mentioned a number of other ways to expand access to justice. You also mentioned regulation of the profession. Could you elaborate on that? What sort of initiatives do you see in that space?
1: Yeah, there are a couple of states that are already leading in thinking differently about how we regulate the profession. And you've probably talked to leaders in all of those states, but Arizona and Utah have ongoing experiments right now with re-regulation. They're thinking about who besides lawyers can fill this enormous justice gap. And they're doing it in a way that they are collecting data along the way to make sure that consumers are not harmed. And that is obviously the, that is an important part of our obligation to the public is making sure they are not harmed when they're provided legal services. And Arizona and Utah are collecting information on that. We're looking at that in Michigan as well. And there are a number of other jurisdictions looking at it. It doesn't make any sense that when you have a medical issue, there are countless different professionals who might be able to help you with it. You don't need a surgeon for every single medical issue you have. Sometimes a nurse practitioner is perfect. Sometimes it's a physician's assistant. Sometimes you just need a physical therapist. There are lots of professionals who are licensed and go to continuing legal education. And you can have confidence in who can help you with your your medical problems. Why we don't have the same structure in law is a really important question for people to be asking, not just lawyers, but also the public and all of these other stakeholders. So I think that's One of the hardest places to make progress, but the fact that some states are just moving forward with it gives me some hope. I do think lawyers are not going to solve this problem. We're not going to be able to lawyer our way out of this access to justice crisis. So if we're not thinking about other solutions, we're not serious.
0: Too often I hear in response to those sorts of proposals concerns about second-class representation for the poor or the notion that the consumer will not be well protected and again it ignores the context that the current regulatory structure has spawned this enormous justice gap and it ignores the examples that you cited in the medical profession we've all gotten a score of vaccines and other health care over the course of the last three years and hopefully before When you go into a a pharmacy and the pharmacist gives you a a vaccination, nobody feels like they're getting second-class service if it's a pharmacist or a pharmacist assistant who delivers the vaccine. We have comparable services in the legal profession, and a one-size-fits-all approach just doesn't make sense.
1: It also ignores the evidence that we know of in the legal profession. There's, There's evidence from the UK and from Canada that a paraprofessional that works in one case area, is often going to provide better service than a generalist lawyer. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Somebody who over and over again is specializing in whatever the area of law is always going to be better than than a generalist lawyer. So it even ignores, ignores that evidence. I always say back to someone who tells me that, what's your evidence for that? What evidence are you relying on to be so confident in that conclusion? And I'm stunned by how little regard there is for data or evidence sometimes from our fellow lawyers. I'm seeing the same with adapting to remote hearings. I, I can't tell you how many conversations I'm in around the country where everyone's talking about, what do we take with us? What will we use remote hearings for? And with absolute certainty, lawyers and judges will tell you, you absolutely can't do X on a remote platform, or you can always do Y, but there's no way in the world you could do Z. And I usually say back, what's your data? Just I, I'm really curious because I, I would love to know what what your data is for that or your evidence. And every single time it's, with full confidence, it's they might have an anecdote, but it's their gut. You know, they're real confident that what they feel in their gut about how things can be done is the right answer. And it's so stunning to me because we require evidence of litigants in our courtrooms. We would never say to a litigant, oh, if you're real sure that's the right answer, then great, judgment for you. No, we require evidence of the public to access our judgments, but of ourselves in how we provide this fundamental service to our neighbors, we're perfectly fine letting our gut guide us. Why do lawyers hate evidence so much? Why do judges hate evidence so much? Let me
0: broaden the conversation a bit. We talk about the justice gap, which drives us toward thinking about this as purely a legal issue. And yet, I think there's a larger issue here. This has been a time of uh, tumult for democracy. So Our Justice Gap report from earlier this year showed that about one in four low-income Americans believe that they don't get a fair shot in the civil justice system. What are your thoughts on the nexus between these justice problems we've been talking about and people's faith in our democracy more generally and the role that lawyers and the profession could serve as part of the broader American democratic experiment?
1: Yeah, this is the whole ballgame to me. I think that this crisis, the fact that most of our neighbors think justice is something that happens to them, not something that they have a stake in and can participate in and are entitled to um, be part of is perhaps the biggest threat to the rule of law and therefore to our democracy of any. I mean, I know there are lots out there right now, so people can fight me on what they think are the bigger threats, but the courts are the only place where most of the people in our communities interact with their government. And if in those interactions they believe that the justice system, the representation of government to them, is not something that treats them fairly, then why, why would they have any confidence in the rule of law? The rule of law is just a set of ideas. It's only as good as the public's confidence in it. And if most of our neighbors have no confidence in it because they think it's something that happens to them, not something that they are part of, then we are really in trouble. On the other hand, it's this tremendous opportunity to grow faith in government. Think of all of the people who are... Walking through our courthouses or dropping in visually through our Zoom courtrooms every day, if they leave those interactions with a feeling that they were heard, that they were part of a solution, even if it wasn't their first choice solution, they understand what it is, they understand why it's happening that's a tremendous opportunity to grow faith in government. So there's a there's a real upside opportunity here and that's that's what I like to focus on. We have this opportunity to grow trust in government, honestly, more than any other institution in my view.
0: You said at the outset of our conversation that one reason for moving on to a new chapter was to open up leadership positions for the next generation. You've spent much of your career not only on the bench but also as a teacher What advice would you give to the next generation? What advice would you give to a new law student entering the profession?
1: I have so much confidence in new law students right now and new law graduates. I I think my primary advice is to be skeptical about the people in my generation and above telling you that, no, you can't do it that way because we've always done it this other way. That's just not true anymore. And I think there are real breakthrough opportunities for innovators in the legal profession, perhaps in a way never possible before, that this is a very exciting time to be joining this profession because so much is changing. And be skeptical about anybody who tells you we've always done it this other way. That's usually a sign that you're onto something and keep going.
0: Yeah. Now, if, if the answer to the question, why are you doing it this way, is because we've always done it that way, and there's no other reason Uh, that is a bright red flag that something is amiss. This probably dovetails with what you just said, but we've been talking about the justice gap and uh, the threat of non-functioning justice system or poorly functioning justice system poses to democracy. What makes you optimistic at this point about the future of the profession and the direction we're headed on these issues?
1: You know, what makes me optimistic, actually, is what I've seen over the last few years. The leaders and the members of the public and the members of law faculties who are working steadily on new ways of approaching old problems that we've never been able to solve, I feel like things are in flux right now. And in flux is, is where you want them to be if you're going to have breakthrough solutions. So I, even though I think there's a lot at stake and a lot of things worry me, Um More than that, I'm optimistic because of all the change I see afoot, and frankly, this next generation of of law students and law graduates. I think they're going to have bigger ideas, and I have a lot of confidence in them. Well,
0: Chief Justice McCormick, I think they're going to have a great example in you to uh, emulate. Thank you for joining me today, but much more importantly, thanks for your innovative and impactful leadership during the pandemic. I think severe public crises focus attention on great leaders and the last several years and before that as well has really shined a bright light on your public service. And
1: I can't wait to see your next chapter. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you, Ron. Thanks for everything you do.
0: Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.